The legacy of family lives in our bones. The peace of our story we can never disown. It's the system that shapes us, our heart's cornerstone. DNA around our ankles like a twisted vine pulls us into the tangle of family lines. We turn to our ancestors as we go looking for answers. How can you go forward unless you go backward? But will the past hold us captive? Or can we forgive? History may go back as far as we can see, but the way things are is not the way things have to be. Mm, that'll preach, right? Yeah, that was awesome. Um, good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday to you. Good morning, everybody. Come on now. You're like real people. Okay. Um, so we are in week five of our Blended series. My name is David Morrow. I get to share the word every once in a while and get to do so today. So I'm excited. And uh, you're going to get there with me. Um, all right. So this is our last week of this series. Um, next week, we have a Q&A uh, in this series. And um, we have uh, an email address and phone numbers that you can send in your questions to. Uh, so info at whchurch.org or 651-321-3030. Any of those will work. I do want to give the caveat, Greg will have professional help on this team. So just know, send in your questions. They will be answered. Um, I also, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, so Thanksgiving is coming up Thursday. Some of you might be inviting some family that are in town to come to the service, and we are Minnesotans, and if we do something well, it's passive-aggressive. So if you have a question you want to ask your, your family, but you're like, I don't really want to ask them, so just send it in, and then when they're sitting here, they'll get asked it. Um, it'll, it's a great tool. So we are here for you in all of our Minnesota dilemmas. Um, okay. So, before we get started, I think it's important to take a deep breath of what the last two weeks of this series have been. Because um, if you've been here and been a part of it, and if your emotions are at all connecting with your brain, um, the tears have been coming. And I think it's important to acknowledge that we've ha experienced some holy moments together. Um, starting with Sandra sharing her story, and then last week, Greg sharing his story. And I think one of the things that I long for us as a church and as a community to take away from that is that there is power in your own story. That there is power in showing up with vulnerability and transparency. That in the midst of a culture that just says, well, just put your best foot forward, that I think one of the things I saw most poignantly over the last couple of weeks is that God says, I want to use your story. And it's not just the story of people standing on this stage. That it's the story of every one of you as you are with whoever you're with on Thursday. <laughs> To know that whether it's sitting around a Thanksgiving table with that person who you wish was not at the table, um, or it's sitting around a table and it's the first Thanksgiving that person is not there. That there is power in you sharing your story and showing up and saying, I'm joyful or I'm hurting or I'm happy or I'm sad or I'm sick or I'm lonely. And that God is going to use that to breathe healing as he's been doing here. Amen? Amen. So I want to encourage you that there's power in your story. And, and our title for this sermon today is called Rooted. 
rooted. And I, I want to tell you a story. And so here's the deal. My wife and I, we used to live in Northeast Minneapolis. And we, we realized uh, near the end of the time that we were there that we really love gardening. Not like flower gardening, like vegetable gardening, which I call functional gardening, um, that you actually get something out of it. And so we got really into doing vegetable gardening, and so uh, we decided we were going to make this raised bed, and this raised gardening bed. So I asked my dad if he would come over and help me, and it was a very intricate process of like a very uniquely shaped raised bed made of stones, and so we had to cut the stones to work around the corners, and, and then my, my dad decided he was going to uh, build like an irrigation system in to this raised bed so that it like would make all the vegetables beautiful and we wouldn't have to worry about it too much. And, and it was an incredible thing for the six months until we moved, um, to which I feel like I need to publicly apologize to my father um, for the countless hours that he, of work that he did on that. Uh, and yet, when we moved, we moved to a house in Little Canada. And, and when we moved there, we came to the house and uh, this picture up on the screen is what we saw in our backyard which down on the bottom there is this three-tiered raised garden. And we thought, hallelujah, <laughs> hallelujah, there is a raised garden here. So immediately in the spring, we started planting vegetables. We started planting tomatoes and peppers and onions and cucumbers and all the things that we were going to grow. And I remember as we were planting the, the vegetables... We have a neighbor named Bob, and Bob comes out to us as we're planting the vegetables, and he just looks at us and goes, mm-mm none of that's going to work. And we said, come on, Bob, we've done this a whole year. We know what we're doing. Uh, we, we've got this vegetable thing figured out. So we just kept planting them. We uh, planted all the vegetables. We saw them starting to come up. And then a about a month into the growth of the vegetables, every plant withered up and died. And I thought to myself, well, that's curious. And, and so I, I remember I had this very kind of humbled, shame-filled moment where I was outside and Bob was out there and I went up to Bob and said, all right, what gives, Bob? What did you know that I didn't know? And what, what he does is he turns around and he points to something in his yard. He points to these five or six massive black walnut trees. And he says, these black walnut trees, those are my retirement plan. When I leave, I'm cutting those down and I'm selling those babies. But what he also told me was that the root system of black walnut trees is toxic to vegetables. I know. Unfair. It's like that's the definition of the fall. It, uh, and so what, what I learned when I did some research on it is that this toxin is called juglone. And what it does is everywhere the root system grows, it sends this toxin out. And so the root system uh, is at a minimum twice as far reaching as the canopy of the tree. And oftentimes four times as far reaching. So these trees, they're massive. They're maybe like a 70 foot canopy, which means the root system is growing out at minimum about 140 feet from the tree and up to two or 300 feet directly into our raised garden. And I said, thanks, I'm sorry I didn't listen, Bob. And what I realized about that, which I think is a similar thing I'm realizing about what we're talking about today, is that oftentimes there are unseen toxins affecting our growth. That there are things that are happening under the surface and all of a sudden I, I just run into the same issues or there's that, that parent or that grandparent or that uncle who they do the same thing over and over and you just keep wondering why. 
And I think that we need to wake up to some of these unseen toxins because it's when we actually are aware of them that God actually gives us the ability and the tools to start getting free from them, which is especially hard in a very individualistic culture that we live in, where we tend to believe that I can live without acknowledging my roots, that I can live without acknowledging where I came from and what I inherited, both for good and for evil. So as we dive into this today, I want to I wanna ask you the question, when you think about your life or you think about your family, what is it that's dying and you just don't know why? What is it that is holding back your family or your community or your friends from moving in a direction that is wholeheartedly focused on God? And as we do that, I, I'm going to share a little bit of my story, some of my roots and, uh, but before we dive into that, I, I want to mention what I talked about three weeks ago, which is that we have this core conviction here at Woodland Hills that we serve a God who is in the business of visiting and responding to the sins of our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers to actually breathe something beautiful into it. That God is a God who says, I'm not just going to leave you. That you're not just fated to be a certain way because that's where you came from. Amen? That God is a God who is going to meet us in it. So, we are going to dive into some of my story. And part of it is because I wanted to use a laser pointer again. Um, So, up on the screen is my family tree. And here's the deal. Every tree has roots, right? And I got some roots. So, down on the bottom here is me. And then my wife, Erica, we have three little kids, Junia, Noah, and Isaac. And because my daughter is a animal lover, she told me I have to put our animals. So Louie is our dog, Gabby is our bunny. Um, And then over on the right, you can see my father-in-law, Robert, my mother-in-law, Cindy, and then Erica's two uh, siblings, Jason and Lauren. And because I enjoy being married, I'm not going into my wife's side of the family. Uh, We're going to just leave that for a whole different conversation. Uh, Don't meddle in your in-laws. Just meddle in your own family. Um, Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to start by talking about my grandparents' parents. So uh, up here you can see Clayton. Now Clayton is my dad's dad, my grandpa. And he had a mom and dad, like most people, uh, Charles and Lella. And what's interesting about their family is that um, when Lella uh, died, when Clayton was 15 years old, and so there was this whole experience of, uh, of gro- going through some of the most formative times of Clayton's life without having a mom in the picture, which also meant that Charles was forced to fill in on some roles that he probably wasn't prepared to do. Um, and, and what it looked like more often than not for Charles, was that he was pretty distant. Um, that, that he wasn't a very nurturing figure to my grandpa, Clayton. And, and one of the, the stories that my, my dad would tell me about Charles is that after he died and they were, they were cleaning out the, the shed where he kept his things, and they, they, they found a trunk in that shed. And when they opened the trunk, they, they found his clan hood and his clan robe. And I've wondered, ever since he told me that, I wonder where that sense of racism is rooted in me. That I think sometimes we can believe, well, that was just my great-grandparents. And yet, if the tree is toxic, the toxin goes. 
And that sometimes we need to wake up to the toxins that are there in order to actually deal with them. And I, I, I think that what I've also realized is that, that as I've talked with my, my family about Charles, about my great-grandpa, is that it was through Charles' line that there was some really damaging sexual abuse that came through Charles and to my grandpa and through cousins and kids and nephews. And I think, I, I wonder, what did the rootedness of that do to my dad, to me, to our family, to my kids. And I think sometimes we need to be aware of where the root is showing up. And yet in the midst of a very difficult experience and growing up, my grandpa Clayton decided, I want to try a different road. And so he said, I want to follow God. And he said, I'm going to go to Minnesota Bible College. And so he did. And he said, I'm going to be a pastor. And, and in the midst of his first sermon that he gave up in front of a congregation like you all, he had a seizure. And he fell to the ground and never got up to preach again. That in the midst of this desire to say, I'm going to do something different than what my dad did, that it's almost as if the toxicity of the roots were too much to handle. And so he ended up becoming a piano tuner, which is fine if that's what you want to do. But if your sense of self-worth is moving in a direction to say, I want to do a different story, and then that story gets derailed, it's damaging. But in the midst of that, my grandma and grandpa, Clayton and Elaine, were extremely hospitable. Like, they were the kind of people that if you got invited over to their house thinking they just invited me over, it's because they invited everybody over. And so you were there with all these people you don't know. And one of the things, my, my grandma was a, a great cook, but around Thanksgiving, she made two things nobody should ever make. Um, and take notes if you're cooking this week. The first one is something called cranberry relish. Ugh. It's, okay, so it's like cranberry sauce, but it's like chunky. And I honestly don't know what the chunks ever were. I, I can remember with the grandkids, like, we'd bet each other money to take a bite of it. Um, and nobody, no money ever went around because we wouldn't do it. And, and, then, and then my grandma would make what, um, honestly, is at minimum deceptive and at most demonic. She made, she made this thing that she brought to us saying, I have cake for you. And we'd say, great. And then we looked at it and it was fruit cake. Which, if you are a kid, it's like, you promised me the world and then you deceived me. <laughs> it's like, the, and yet in their desire to be hospitable, there was also this kind of tinge of legalism in it, which, which it's like, okay, this root is good and yet it's still kind of warped at times. And my grandpa and grandma had three boys that we'll see on the screen here. And the three boys are Steve, my uncle, my dad, Dennis, and then David, who I'm named after. And now David, he died when he was two days old. And I remember hearing stories about David, who I'm named after. But the, the story that hits me most <laughs> difficultly is the story of when my grandma and grandpa were home eventually from the hospital after David died. And my grandma's mom, Winnie, um, came up to my grandpa Clayton and said, you know, it's probably better that he died than have you as a dad. Can you imagine for a, 
a man who already didn't really have much of a father figure to look up to, to have your, you defined that way as a dad. And how those roots would have moved their way down the tree. And yet, they really tried to breathe new life into the roots of their family. I mean, I mean Clayton, I think, did, did as good a job as he was able to raising his boys. And, and in the midst of trying to do it with all the baggage that he had, he, he, he ended up favoring my uncle over my dad to the extent where, like, when, when, when they wanted to go to college, um, they were given the option that we'll pay for you to go to Minnesota Bible College, but if you don't want to go there, you're on your own. And my uncle said yes, my dad said no, and um, it, 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 the favoritism and how you experience that in the family is real. And my grandma's parents, uh, Ray and Winnie, well, w- Winnie obviously had a bit of a mean streak at times, um, but Ray was a pastor in Wisconsin, and, 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 and yet what's fascinating is that Ray and Winnie had Elaine before they were married. Um, which, if you think about that, that was 1920. And Ray is a pastor. So imagine this, these two coming together, one a pastor, and they're not married yet, and now they have a baby. Think about the ridicule, what it felt like to be ostracized, the stigma with it. And so on this one side of the family, you have this like mixed bag of abuse and favoritism and racism, all in the midst of trying to like, live out a new way of following God and trying to say we want to be hospitable. And, and so it's just this mixed bag like most of our root system are. And, and then you get to my mom's side of the family. And my mom's side of the family, the only grandpa that is alive for me is Harley. And that's Harley right here. Now, Harley is 101 years old. And If you want to know what it looks like to be awesome and be 101, take a look at this quick video here. Nice ball. (laughs) Uh, I know, isn't that awesome? If you are a podrishner, you need to watch that and be inspired um, by a 101-year-old who can crush a golf ball. And here's the thing. My grandpa Harley is one of my heroes. And uh, Harley had parents named Gustav and Carrie. Um, shockingly, they were Swedish. And uh, Gustav was, as far as I know and what I've heard, a very kind and gentle man. And, and Carrie, from what my mom has told me in many ways, was kind of the spiritual root of our family. That, that, that she was known as one who would spend time every day with God and still has the devotional that my mom had used for a while and my grandpa uses and our kids will use. And, and so there's this, this tap root of a desire to follow God that came through my grandpa's parents. And yet to the degree that this, this, these group of parents were positive and beneficial, uh, to the exact opposite was true with my grandma Elizabeth's parents. Um, my, my grandma Elizabeth, which you can see up on the tree there, her dad was Edward and uh, her mom was Abby. And for decades, Edward was physically abusive to both Abby and my grandma and their sisters and their brother. 
And I remember hearing stories about how it didn't stop until Dale, my grandma's brother, actually was old enough to come to Edward and say, if you do that again, I'm going to hit you back. And could actually stand up against him. And I, I heard stories about Abby that she was this tenacious woman. That she was this woman who said, I'm not going to leave because if, you, if I leave, you're going to take the kids and I'm going to fight for my kids. And so she stayed in the midst of the abuse. And in the midst of the abuse, she was college ed educated. She was a teacher. She was a Sunday school superintendent. And honestly, I think she changed the trajectory of our family going forward from there. This woman who said, I'm not going to leave. This woman who said, I'm going to fight for my kids. And my grandpa Harley got married to Elizabeth and they were married for 58 years, which was incredible. And during that time, it was in many ways a really good marriage up until the last number of years when my grandma dealt with severe Alzheimer's. And I can still remember as a little kid um, being in the, the nursing home when, where my grandma was staying when my grandpa would walk into the room and like he did every day to spend time with his wife and every day he'd have to reintroduce himself to his wife of 55 years. And I remember both sensing the pain but also my admiration for this man who said, I said death deal, uh, I'm going to be with you until we part and I meant it, that I'm actually going to stay and I'm going to be present, and I'm going to be with you. And uh, honestly, one of the most damaging things uh, for my grandma around the abuse she suffered was what it did to her picture of God. That she, for most of her life, had this experience of God that was more aloof and distant than intimate. And, and I think one of the things that's most amazing to me is that I think that God used the Alzheimer's in some pretty amazing ways to visit and respond to my grandma in her pain. That it was near the end of her life that I think God used the Alzheimer's to actually help her forget her earthly dad to wake up to the beauty of her heavenly dad. That God used that. It's like, it's then we started hearing stories about the revival when she accepted Christ, her, her desire to follow God that I think got muted in the midst of the abuse when she was trying to survive. But, but God brought it back like he does. Like he does. That he can breathe new life into these areas. And, and then my, after my grandma died, my grandpa got remarried when he was 85 to an 88-year-old. <laughs> if you thought you were done, you're not. And so they were married for seven years and then Verna died. And it's fascinating because when I look at my grandparents and my great-grandparents, I see this mixed bag that... Like all of us, there are toxic roots. I see things like abuse, this diminishment of women. I see racism and favoritism and, and men who are disengaged from their family. But in the midst of it, there is this light that God started showing up to my grandparents in a deeper way than he did to my great-grandparents. That you start to see some of the toxic roots getting smoothed out as it goes. And I wonder what that looks like for me. I wonder what that looks like for my family. And this next picture is a picture of my family. I'm the cute one on the left. Um, so this is my dad, Dennis, on the right, my sister, Sarah Gretchen, and then my mom, 
Pat. And I think one of the things I admire so much about my parents is that they knew the toxicity of the root system that they inherited and they intentionally said, we're going to choose a different path. That we are going to choose faithfulness in marriage. We are going to choose to fight against favoritism with our kids. We are going to choose to walk in godliness in a way that was different than what we saw. And it changed the trajectory of our family. And yet, what's interesting is that when I think about my childhood, we had a lot of adventures. We did a lot of travel. We ended up living in Hong Kong for a while. We, we, we did all these different things. And yet, when I think about my childhood and I think about like memories that are most vivid, those aren't the memories I have. And what I've learned from my therapist when he's talked to me is that like, okay, our life can sometimes feel like a bucket that goes down a well. And sometimes our job as kingdom people is to let that bucket drop another five feet and see what gets revealed to us. Because when I start thinking about the memories that are most vivid in my mind of being a kid, some of the most vivid memories are of being alone. That... I, I, I'm naturally an introvert, which really means if you all weren't here, that'd be great. Um, and, uh, but you're here, so you can stay. Um, but most of my earliest memories are of being alone, and I, I've always found it easier to isolate than relate. That it's always been a simpler thing for me, and it continues to this day to some extent. Like, I, I can remember as a kid, I collected baseball cards, and, and I had over 15,000 baseball cards. And one of the things I, I vividly remember doing is that every couple weeks, I counted every one of them. I have the boxes still where I would, like, write how many were in each box. Like, just picture little David, how, how many hours it must have taken me to sit in a room counting all those cards. And I think some of that was my young version of myself recognizing that emotional connection is difficult for me. And then I, I vividly remember the year when my world started to feel unsafe. I remember I was in third grade. And it was in third grade that this new kid started coming to our school. And I remember the first time I saw him, I hopped on the bus and the first thing he did was to start yelling and making fun of the way that I looked and what I was wearing and how I was walking. And then every day he did what he did that first day for the next four years, which was when I would walk by his seat, he would just jam me into the side of the bus. And I remember it for four years. I remember wondering if the narrative that got locked in my head was actually true, which was that anybody that was my friend was just doing me a favor. I remember wondering, why is that, that this hurt just keeps happening? And honestly, it kept me guarded for a long time. And this isolation that I felt that was just locked into me, um, it, it got expanded when I was in fifth grade because it was in fifth grade that my sister Gretchen was diagnosed with diabetes. And I remember this vividly, and I remember what, what the natural reaction of our family should have been, which was to focus very, very much on my sister, to help work through this and help her deal with this, because it was a big deal, and it is a big deal. And, but I remember that it was in that time that my isolation transitioned to addiction. And it was in fifth grade that I had neighbors that started introducing me to pornography. And I remember that happening and that continuing for more than a decade. 
as I struggled with that, but I stayed isolated in that. And I've wondered as I think about that, how the root of sexual sin, whether it was from my great-grandpa or my grandpa, was starting to unearth in my own life. And I think now when I think back on it, it's like, okay, what are the things that are unearthing? And I've started to notice more clearly how these roots of my family were, are, are starting to take shape in my life. And it, like all of our roots, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag of love for God mixed with the desire to be generous, mixed with, the, mixed with the reality of isolation and disengagement entangled with sexual sin. That we all live a mixed bag in our root system. And I think part of our job as kingdom people is to wake up to it enough that we can actually invite God into it. And uh, one of the ways I've been waking up to this is by looking at Jesus' root system. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we talked about how their root system was anything but happy. That it was a mess. And, and, and look at how Matthew describes Jesus' genealogy. He says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and then it works its way down to Jesus. That the root system of Jesus was toxic. He was, it was filled with brokenness and murder and slavery and favoritism. And I think one of the things we can take from that is if Jesus' root system was messy, maybe he can speak into our messy root system. Amen? That, that we are not alone in that. And yet, I think the challenge is that we are honestly, we are neurologically and psychologically wired to believe that what is toxic is permanent. That the root system that is toxic is never going away. That it is the thing that is going to stick with us. That we have this binary perception that, well, if it's toxic, it's always toxic. Or if it's good, it's always good. And, and, and I think this, this just leaks its way into our families to start thinking, well, if, if grandpa's been like that, he must always be like that. You know his family. Or if my uncle's like that, you know that's always how they're going to be because that root system, well, it's toxic. And I think what I'm challenged by is to know that Matthew's genealogy about Jesus' line is not the only one we get. That Luke tells us where Jesus came from too. And look at how Luke says this. Luke says that Jesus is the son of Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, but he doesn't stop there. He says it goes further. He says Jesus is the son of Terah and Nahor and Serug and Reu and Peleg and Eber and Shelah and Canaan and Arphaxad and Shem and Noah and Lamech, and Methuselah, and Enoch, and Jared, and Mahalalel, and Canaan, and Enos, and Seth, and Adam, and God. That Jesus has roots, but the deeper you go in the roots, you get to the truest thing about him, which is that he's a son of God. And if it's true about him, it's true about us, amen? That, that God says that there is a deeper root to the toxic one you see right now. That you, you may have a, you may be the son of Charles, you may be the son of Clayton, you may be the son of Winnie, you may be the son of Ad, Edward and Abby and Dennis and Harley and Elizabeth, but what is most true about you is you are a child of God. That that is the truest thing. And to the degree that we wake up to that, we actually get freed. That, that the fact that you're made in the image of God is more true than the fall. The fact that you're made in the image of God is more true than the fall. 
that God said you are worth dying for. And I think part of our challenge is that the deeper we go in the root system, we start stopping when it gets toxic. And God is saying, no, you got to dig deeper because that's who you really are. That when you dig deeper, you start seeing you are holy. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are blameless. You are seated in heavenly places. And there's nothing more true about you than that. And we are rooted for a purpose. That God says, I didn't just root you there so you could stay there. I rooted you there, as John talks about in Revelation, I rooted you there so you could be a tree whose leaves would breathe healing to the world. That it is not just about you being rooted in God so that you can just live a good life. It's about being rooted in God so that you can remember who you are and breathe healing to those around you. Amen? Amen. And what's amazing is that this wiring we have to believe what is toxic is permanent, Jesus totally flips on its head. That when he walks up to a leper, and in that culture, if you touch a leper, you get made unclean. But Jesus says, that's not how it works with me. He says, when I touch what is unclean, I bring clean there. That when I touch what is toxic, I bring what is pure there. That when Jesus has the woman bleeding come up to him and touches him and all the religious leaders are like, yeah, you're unclean now, Jesus. He says, you don't get how this works. He says, you don't get that when I touch what is unclean, I make it clean. And Jesus is the same thing to us. And this is the process of discipleship, my friends, is to wake up to all the psychologically and neurologically wired toxicity in our brain to allow God to wire it towards what he says is truest about you, which is that you are his child more than you are anybody else's child. That that is what is true. And I think what's amazing is that when we start letting that sink in, not only can it start to rewrite the story of our families, as I see it in my family, but it allows us to live in safety and a rootedness in God so we can actually start to do the work of forgiveness without needing to hang on to it all. That we can start walking in some of that freedom. And so I wonder, as I've been thinking about this, and I, and I wonder what it looks like for you when you think about it, but what are the toxic roots that need forgiveness in your life, in your family, in your story. Because what I am convinced of is that the only way to uproot the toxicity is to use the shovel of forgiveness. That that is what gets us down to where we can actually be aware of who God says we are. And yet... I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says that everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until you actually have to do it. <laughs> and yet, in the midst of this massively difficult task around forgiveness, Jesus commands it. That he actually makes it seem like his forgiveness of us is conditional on our forgiveness of others, to which I say to Jesus, why? I mean, it is massively difficult to do it is massively difficult to do. And I think that the reason he does it is because there's so much at stake if we don't. That uh, where I work at Union Gospel Mission, we do retreats often. And one of the retreats that we do is, is looking at all of the lies and tapes in our head that you received from your father and your mother of origin. And so we spend time sitting through, okay, what, what was the message you heard? from your mom? What was the message you heard from your dad about who you are? And, and it, it happens every time that when we start doing ministry around these messages, what happens is that 
warfare starts going on. That the enemy starts fighting back like I rarely ever see the enemy fight back in these instances. Like the last time somebody just slammed to the ground with a seizure. While we were trying to just unearth what was going on. And I, I think what's going on here is what Paul was talking about in 2 uh, Corinthians 2.11. Um, he says that, and we do this. And the this in this context is forgiveness because this is a congregation that needs to forgive somebody and Paul is like, you got to be done. You got to forgive. And he says, here's why, so that we might not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. And I am convinced that unforgiveness is one of the primary inroads that the enemy will use to solidify lies. To solidify lies about who we are and who the actual enemy is. That that person you need to forgive is not the enemy. That to the degree that we walk in unforgiveness, we actually are getting played by the real enemy. And our job is to start waking up to that. Yeah. And here's the thing. The caveat I want to make is that forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. That it is possible to let go of the grudge, let go of the anger, and know that I can't be in a relationship with that person anymore. That there are people who are toxic. And to the degree that we stay close to them, they just keep reminding us of all the junk we're trying to get away from. And so I want to make the point that forgiveness, it's not reconciliation, but it's also not ignoring the pain. It's not minimizing the sin. It's not minimizing what actually happened. That it's the exact opposite. That this process of forgiveness allows us to recognize and acknowledge the gravity and the weight of the sin and how they have tangled up our life. And to wake up to it. So uh, uh, what I want to do as we begin to wrap things up is uh, I want to provide a few steps or ideas of what we could do to take our grip from tightly wound around unforgiveness and start loosening the grip just a little bit. And one of the first steps that I think we're being asked to take is to start praying for that person every day. Whoever that person is in your life. It might be they're not around anymore. It might be they live somewhere else. It might be they're not alive anymore. Or it might be somebody you live with. Um, But it starts with the heartfelt prayer of God. I want to pray curses over this person, but I'm going to choose blessing. Amen. Um, And I I think when we start doing that, God slowly starts to release our grasp and loosen our grip, which leads us to the opportunity to get to the second part of the process, which is to express the emotion, to talk about how it hurts. For me, this meant talking to a counselor. For some, this means talking to a pastor. For some, this means writing in a journal. For some, this means sitting across from an empty chair, imagining it's the person, and just saying, here's what it felt like. Um, And to start to express what really happened. And then the next step I've found to be so helpful is to look for a why. This has been the benefit of this whole process of a genogram and a family tree and looking at our inheritance is because what it means is that I could look, for instance, at, at my grandpa Clayton and I could be frustrated that he seemed to show favoritism over my uncle, over my dad. But the more I look back in the root system, it's miraculous he did it as well as he did based on what he had to work with. And I think when we look for a why, it builds empathy, <laughs> It builds empathy and compassion and it gives us a freedom to say that nobody is sinless and nobody is fully to blame. 
that nobody is sinless and nobody is fully to blame, that it's not the end of the story. And, and I think where it leads us to next is that we have this opportunity to say, okay, where do I need to rebuild some safety? To know that there may be people that you're going to let go of your grasp around, but you need to make sure they don't come back and bring the toxicity with them. And so it might mean having some accountability partners to say, well, when you say, yeah, I'm going to go hang out with that person, you could be like, I know what you're like after you hang out with that person. And that is not a healthy place for you to go right now. And so to have people that you trust that can guide you and give you wisdom and grow in it. Which ultimately leads us to the place where with the help of God, we can let go. That we can say, I'm not going to be controlled by your toxicity. I'm not going to be controlled by the lies that got instilled in my head. I love how Anne Lamott talks about forgiveness. She says, forgiveness means it finally becomes unimportant that you hit back. You're done. It doesn't necessarily mean you want to have lunch with the person. But if you keep hitting back, you stay trapped in the nightmare. You stay trapped in the nightmare. And I think the God of the universe is calling us to say, I know what your root system is like. I was there. I saw it all. And you got to know that the truest thing about you is who I say you are. You are my child. And as my child, I get to give you the authority to let go. That you don't have to hang on to it. And when we do that, we, we actually get to image God in a very unique way. Because when God says, I'm going to forgive of your sin, now we get to say, because of all I've been forgiven, I get to start the process of letting go myself. And I get to walk it out. So my question as we close today, is what is the next step God's asking you to take to move towards forgiveness? Towards this goal of being more fully rooted in Christ. Because to the degree that we hang on to that, we can't get fully rooted. Because the shovel that unearths who we really are is forgiveness. That's how we get there. So, I'm going to invite you as we close to stand with me. And as you stand, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward. And if there's any prayer that you would like, these folks would love to pray with you. If there is a step that you need to take, and maybe it's that simple prayer of, God, help me to pray blessing over this person, these folks would love to pray with you. If you're wondering how you're going to navigate Thanksgiving, these folks would love to pray with you. And as we close, I want to end with a benediction, which is the benediction from Ephesians 3, which is the verse that Greg started our series with. Um, so if you're willing, I would just encourage you, put your hands out to receive this benediction. And here's what it says. It says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name, that the deepest root is from our Father in heaven. And I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you would be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded. Greg started our series with. Um, so if you're willing, I would just encourage you to put your hands out to receive this benediction.